Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to Project Zion podcast. This is Cup of Joe, where we explore restoration history. And I'm your host for that today, Karen Peter. And our guest is Locke Mackay. Now, Locke's been on Project Zion millions of times, I'm sure, is the actual literal number. But you are often on Project Zion. Uh, Locke is a member of the Council of Twelve Apostles. He serves as Historic Sites Director and as Church History and Sacred Story Ministries Team Lead, what we used to call Church Historian, and now we're calling Church History and Sacred Story Ministries. Locke is an historian and an author, and he often presents at the Salt Lake City Sunstone Symposium, and I think at the Nauvoo Sunstones as well. You can be found since you're, uh, since you live pretty close to there, I'd say. So many of our listeners have met you in one of those capacities, Locke. So welcome back to Project Zion Podcast. Thank you. Always a privilege to be with you. So today we're going to talk about your contribution to the Historic Sites Foundation Summer Lecture Series that took place this past summer. And your contribution is the Life, Legacy, and Lessons from Joseph Smith III. Now, many of our listeners are more familiar with a different Joseph Smith, the Joseph Smith Jr., but today we're going to talk about his eldest son, Joseph III. So introduce us, if you will, or for our longtime Community of Christ folks, reintroduce us to this important figure in Community of Christ. Joseph Smith III, of course, the oldest surviving son of Joseph and Emma Smith, as you suggested, is a critically important person in the development of Community of Christ. He was our prophet president for 54 years. Wow joined us. Uh, it was just this incredibly diverse group of dissenters, often referred to as the scattered saints, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, just just kind of folks who, for whatever reason, had not gone west. And under his direction, those people were slowly uh, tracked down and relationships developed, and those relationships often grew into membership in the reorganization. And it's just amazing to me that he was able to kind of stitch us back together into a cohesive group. Under his leadership, we grew from maybe 300 members to 72,000 by his death in 1914. Uh, Also played a really important role in returning us to kind of a, a Kirtland period theology uh, Alma Blair has talked about us, at, although we don't call ourselves Mormon, and not a bad two-word description, moderate Mormon, um, really returning to an 1830s Kirtland theology. And that was critically important of Joseph III to do as well. Okay, let's let's stop there for a minute. And when we talk about that, of course, most community Christ folks just had a shiver down their spine when you put us under the Mormon umbrella. But let's look at it from that broader perspective and what that kind of meant um, in 1860 in this time period. So when you say took us back to a Kirtland kind of moderate Mormon uh, perspective or theology, what what are you talking about? What I'm talking about is as a uh, an understanding that's really grounded in the pages of the New Testament, particularly the New Testament book of Acts, uh, 
uh, chapter two. So a gathered community of believers passionate about proclaiming the gospel to the West, rest of the world, sharing or trying anyway, all things common so that the surplus of the wealthy could lift up the poor. So just desperately focused on the needs of the poor, maybe because we were the poor. Uh, and because Acts is so early in Christian history, the temple still plays a role in the life of the church. They're still Jewish. Uh, so Kirtland Temple, uh, a building focused on uh, spiritual empowerment, intellectual empowerment, uh, as well as uh, a place to worship. So two-thirds of Kirtland Temple were classroom space, uh, the lower court, the first floor, Sunday worship, Thursday prayer meetings, things like that. So it's a a, a kind of Latter-day Saintism um, that is, is not uncomfortable to Orthodox Christians in most ways. Now, exceptions, of course, being prophetic leadership, open canon scripture, Book of Mormon, that would, of course, still be uncomfortable. Uh, so, yeah, I, I recognize that Mormon is uncomfortable for some, um, but in historical circles, um, it's not so uncomfortable. Right. So we're talking about a practice and theology of people that really revolved around spiritual, uh, what we would now call spiritual formation or spiritual empowerment, the educational aspects of what it meant to be a disciple, and then, of course, the gathered worship experience, which sounds like a really typical kind of Christian expression there without the oddities that you threw in at the yeah. end there. Yeah. Okay. So that helps kind of um, look at, at where, where that is and what that, uh, what that is. So this is, this is kind of the legacy that we have from Joseph Smith III, but let's go back and talk a little bit about him. Um, he grew up in Nauvoo and he grew up after the death of his father. So what do we know about Joseph Smith III and his experience growing up in Nauvoo? So in some ways, he was growing up in a, an almost abandoned city. That's overstating it. But, you know, there were probably 12,000 folks here in 1845 or so, 46. Um, but soon many, many headed west and others scattered in different directions. So we probably dropped to maybe 1,200 folks. And so Joseph is growing up kind of in the shadow of his father's grand communitarian experiment. Um, it, it, it had to be, though, in some ways, a wonderful place to grow up with the Mississippi River on three sides of us. There's all kinds of opportunities uh, for both recreation and sport and um, a place that had been kind of pulled apart by religion became a place where the social life for young people, for teenagers and young adults, really centered around church. So Joseph III talks about how he regularly went to church with his friends, whether it was Catholic Mass or the Methodists or the Presbyterians. Uh, it, religion was not something that, that people fought about after Joseph Smith Jr.'s death in Nauvoo. And almost every congregation had both an English-speaking congregation and a German-speaking congregation so Nauvoo soon is, is full of Germanic people. And so Joseph III would have been interacting with, with those folks as well. Soon French Icarians come in, another um, utopian group who lived communally. 
So he would have been kind of watching others attempt to live out some of these same concepts as well. He eventually, um, courtesy of the influence of his stepfather, Louis Vitamin, went to Canton, Illinois, and studied law. And that, and we can touch on that later, but that really was critically important in his development and his worldview. So in your lecture, you talk about a variety of uh, topics that kind of shaped his character, his life and character. Some of them from before his father's death, and one of those is the militaristic legacy of Nauvoo um, that that was very prevalent when when Joseph Smith Jr. was alive. And also this idea of the German immigration, French immigration, and others coming into the Nauvoo area, including those immigrants who had come as part of the Restoration Movement. And also you talk about slavery a little bit and Joseph Smith III's perspective, formative perspective on that. So can you talk about any of those or any other kind of character shaping topics from his life in Nauvoo? Yeah, so we have to remember that Joseph III um, lived through some really violent episodes in the life of the church, um, whether it's being expelled from far west Missouri in the extermination order. At one point, he's separated by the point of a sword from his father in Missouri. Um, you know, his dad is locked up there for months. Uh, he witnesses the rise of the Nauvoo Legion, probably the second largest group um, after the U.S. Standing Army, U.S. Standing Army, maybe 8,000 folk, maybe 3,000 in the Nauvoo Legion, and the zeal. So the fact that we're engaged in the Legion is not unusual. You're legally obligated to have a state militia participate in it if you're a white adult male between certain ages. But we were really passionate about it and our zeal for that that military organization frightened our neighbors. Joseph III, even as a child, is engaged with the Legion initially, something called Bailey's Boys Troops. But he says, probably due to the influence of my mother, I soon uh, stopped participating. And as he watched what happened and then watched them, you know, with the murder of his uncle and father and the dispersal of the community, he came to believe that the spirit of militarism in Nauvoo and which had originated in Missouri, was a very significant mistake. Uh, He was especially troubled that we turned to the scriptures to justify uh, our embracing of of violence to try and settle conflicts. Um, And he's not quick ever to judge his father, but but he says, I I think it was a mistake for the leading minds of the church, the leading figures of the church, uh, to kind of get caught up in that spirit of militarism. Uh, and he is critical in, in kind of returning what would become community of Christ uh, to the path of peacemakers. In other ways, he expressed that that seeking peace through justice, um, particularly, for example, when it comes to immigrants. By 1858, he's serving as justice of the peace in Nauvoo. It's kind of a combination of sheriff and judge. And by 1860, Um, almost everybody in Nauvoo is some kind of immigrant. And Joseph III came to believe that those people were being taken advantage of because of their uh, lack of familiarity with our language and customs. So he would try and protect them by doing their legal work 
for a reduced fee or for no cost if they couldn't pay. I uh, felt pretty strongly about the need to defend and protect folks who were at a disadvantage here. That concern uh, was also expressed when it came to enslaved peoples. Joseph Smith III hated slavery with a passion, uh, and it it played a very significant role in the development of his political worldview. Um, but as Justice of the Peace, there were times when people would turn to him and ask for help to arrest runaway slaves. Um, he would refuse to do it. Uh, at one point, somebody threatened him with the law if he wouldn't help, and he pointed out that if uh, he said, no court in the land can make laws fast enough or strong enough to make a slave catcher out of me. <laughs> so just really passionate about folks on the margins, what some might think of as the fringe dwellers in in society. Joseph III simply refused to allow them to be left on the fringes uh, and would do everything he can to, to pull them into the center. When we think about um, this period of time, we're talking about the time leading up to, during, and following uh, the Civil War in the United States. And so um, all of these topics, the mm -hmm. treatment of immigrants, uh, the reality of enslaved people in the United States and in our political system, and uh, military service and uh, the taking of human life, all of those aspects that were very current, very topical at that period of time. So you said earlier yeah, that- Yeah, Joseph III- No, go ahead. I was just gonna say on military service, uh, Joseph III came to believe that um, we shouldn't enlist, but if drafted, we should serve. Um, kind of an interesting take. That sounds, that sounds like a lawyer response. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so you did say that his stepfather encouraged him to study law. Um, do we know why or, or what drove that? Uh, I'm guessing that um, Lewis probably saw it as a potentially lucrative career. Uh, with, with Lewis Vitamin, opportunities to make money were, were always near the top of the list of things he was interested in. Uh, but I'm guessing he also recognized in Joseph III, and I think Joseph III probably inherited this from Emma, uh, kind of a legalistic mindset. So e e even before any legal training, I think that's simply the way Joseph III saw the world. And I think Lewis probably recognized that in him. So in his life, growing up in Nauvoo as a young uh, person, and then the aspects of his engagement with people in the Nauvoo area, and as he studied law, and then as he stepped into leadership of what became the reorganization, um, Joseph Smith III also married. And in fact, in the course of his life, he married three times, although um, only to one wife at a time. So we make that clear for all of our listeners. So can you tell us a little bit about um, Joseph Smith's uh, partners in his lifetime? the women he married. Yeah. So Joseph III's first wife was Emmeline Griswold. She uh, grew up in the Nauvoo area, 
Her family were not Latter-day Saints. In fact, were quite antagonistic towards the Latter-day Saints. Uh, Joseph III met her and wasn't a particularly significant event. But a few months later, after coming back from Canton and his studying law, uh, saw her walking down a muddy street. And Joseph III turned to his brother and said, if you'll jump out, I'm going to offer Miss Griswold a ride home. And if if I can, I'm going to make her my wife. <laughs> uh, and so the brother jumped out and Joseph III was typically known as Emma. Uh, and they began courting and uh, eventually are married. Her family was, uh, again, not at all supportive and uh, it seems even disowned her for a short period over marrying the son of the Mormon prophet. Um, so at their wedding, it was just Joseph III and Emmeline and the Presbyterian minister who married them. And I think one young woman, a German girl who was the maid of honor. Uh, so eventually the family got over it and and they seemed to get along well. And eventually uh, Emmeline, um, about three years before her death, joined the reorganization. She was baptized by David. Uh, and Joseph III, as he proposed, kind of laid out, and there's just one condition. If I ever feel uh, the need to join uh, a Latter-day Saint religious tradition or even lead, uh, I need your permission up front to, to do that and be supportive. Uh, so that was the one condition going into the to the marriage. And she agreed, apparently. They, uh, they really she agreed yeah uh they they had i think it was five children uh not all survived um and and as i think often the case with your first love joseph iii was just smitten with emmeline Uh, she was not particularly healthy though she was pretty fragile when it came to health and following a miscarriage she was ill for a number of months and then died as you can imagine, it was devastating for Joseph III by that time living in Plano, Illinois. The Forskett family um, moved into the home to try and help. Uh, but there was also a young woman, uh, Bertha Madison, who was living in the home by that time to help care for the kids and do some housekeeping as Emmeline was ill. Bertha's story, uh, she was part of a Norwegian community, uh, not not too far from Plano, Illinois. Uh, and they, a number of them had become Latter-day Saints in the 1840s. Following Joseph Smith Jr.'s death, some had become associated with James Strang, uh, but others simply are kind of out there on the prairies farming. And Bertha's family was, was in that area. And she had, as a young girl, joined the reorganization and was part of what was called the Mission Illinois Branch. Uh, almost all Norwegians, and so good, good Norwegian stock. Um, there was a fair amount of gossip uh, going around because there was a single woman living in the prophet's home, um, even though the Forskett family was there as well, kind of as chaperones. Uh, Joseph III just tried to ignore the gossip, but uh, eventually it got so so bad that. Bertha was found by Joseph III crying one day, so upset by it, and he realized he had to do something and, and kind of went in prayer. And apparently there were two, two attractive options for Joseph III, uh, but after a, a period of prayer, he ended up proposing to, to Bertha. 
and they were married and were happily married for you know, 26 or so years. Um, a number of children uh, from that marriage, including Frederick Madison Smith and Israel A. Smith, both um, of whom would later become uh, presidents of the reorganization. By the time they're living in Lamoni, Iowa, in the 1880s, they moved there. But Bertha is killed in a carriage accident. Um, her horse spooked and bolted, and um, she she was thrown. Uh, it was just, again, devastating for Joseph III. I think that's 19, 1896. Um, Joseph III had no, no intention of marrying again. Uh, but a year later, he is in Canada and is, um, meets a young woman who had actually met at a Kirtland reunion earlier, but they became reacquainted and soon uh, the closest companions. Uh, this one, for some people, was was even more scandalous because more than 30 years separated them in age. Uh, but soon Joseph III marries Ada Clark and brings her home to Lamoni, Iowa, introduces him to his family there. And they have three children, including W. Wallace Smith, who also would become a president of the reorganization. So Joseph III is widowed twice, married three times, having children in his 70s. Uh, the three of his sons succeeded him in the presidency of the church, the third of whom became our prophet president 98 years after his father had assumed that role. Wow. I guess when you're having children in your 70s, you can have those long uh, time spans. So yeah. I can, uh, I wanted to just kind of go back a minute when you talked about the gossip that was shaping around the household because Bertha was an unmarried woman living in the household. With the history from Joseph Smith Jr., you can understand the concerns that would tend to shape and form some of that gossip that was happening in the church um, community and, and try to think that maybe um, people weren't just being vicious. They were actually concerned about what that looked like. Yeah. I think they were just being vicious. <laughs> uh, I, I agree that there would be some reasons for concern. So when he did marry her, then people complained that he hadn't waited long enough after the death of Emmeline. <laughs> and okay, they complained because he married a woman of foreign. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So typical. Tragic. Yeah. <laughs> typical small group behavior. Never mind. I won't try <laughs> I won't try to make it sound better than it actually obviously was. <laughs> so when he married Emmeline, he had this provision that if he decided to participate in a Latter-day Saint tradition that he would need her support. Some would say that he was reluctant to do that very thing. And in fact, was reluctant to take up the leadership of what became the reorganization. So can you tell us a little bit of how, how that transpired and how did he come to be the first prophet president of the reorganization? Yeah, I would be one of those people who, who would say he was reluctant to take up that role. So he was living his life uh, happily in Nauvoo, um, had some financial struggles at times, lost some children. So there was clearly pain in his life as well. Um, and it was not uncommon for 
members of the various Latter-day Saint traditions to visit, and it was not uncommon for them to invite or hope that Joseph III or other Smith family members might join them, would bring significant uh, credibility to their movements, uh, I think was their belief. And at some point, Joseph III was having a conversation with Christopher and Putnam Yates. Um, they were Nauvoo residents, and uh, they were actually encouraging him to go to Utah, <laughs> you know, saying things like, well, you, you could be rich and you could marry lots of cute wives. And you know, what are you doing here? Um, and Joseph III began to wonder if maybe it was just his mother's biases that had convinced him that that was such a terrible idea. Um, he'd had a visit from George A. Smith and Erastus Snow, apostles in the LDS church at the time, inviting him to come on out. Um, and he just kind of wanted to, but but had um, kind of a visionary experience, which led him to believe that that was not an option. He should not go west, but he still wasn't sure what he should do. Uh, and then he is visited by Samuel Gurley and E.C. Briggs. They were missionaries for what was becoming the, the reorganization or the new organization. And they expected that as they extended an invitation to Joseph III, he would immediately accept and immediately step in and lead them. Instead, he stopped just short of kicking them out of his house. He just didn't want anything to do with them. Um, one of them was angry, and one of them started crying. <laughs> oh, my. But uh, Samuel Gurley um, decided to stay in the area, and I think he spent about a year, um, and uh, ended up working for Joseph Smith III and, and forming a really nice relationship. I think that was, was critically important in, in what would follow. Eventually, Joseph III reached out to William Marks, who had been the state president in 1840s Nauvoo, a very good friend of the Smith family. Um, and they were doing some corresponding. And Joseph III eventually uh, felt led. He had, again, some pretty rough experiences in his life, um, but felt led to, to join with what was becoming the reorganization. It's kind of funny when he wrote William Marks and said, I, I think I'm ready. Marx responded by saying, we've had enough of man-made prophets and we don't want any more of that sort. If God has called you, we want to know it. If he has, the church is ready to sustain you. If not, we want nothing to do with you. <laughs> I don't think that's the response Joseph III was expecting. <laughs> Wowzer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, um, in April of 1860, Joseph and his mom, Emma, traveled to Amboy, Illinois, and united with the reorganization. They were accepted on their original baptisms, uh, and Joseph III becomes prophet president at that same gathering. Um, he said some really interesting things uh, as he did that, things like, I've come uh, by a power not my own, you know, if the same spirit that has sent me prompts my acceptance, I'm with you. He also said, I believe in the Bible, and the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, which are auxiliaries to the Bible. That was kind of interesting. Uh, but join with us April 6th of 1860, Amboy, Illinois. That is interesting language, auxiliaries. Um, it's very reflective that we have similar language. We don't use auxiliaries, but in our statement on Scripture, we talk about the Bible as central to our faith, and the Restoration Scripture supports but does not replace that text. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, part of his uh, legacy. 
So you mentioned um, his sons who went on to lead the reorganization. You mentioned the the three of his sons who did that. Anything else you want to share about them? We have a a Project Zion podcast that Andrew Bolton did that talks a little bit about um, Frederick Madison Smith, but I don't think we've we've talked about um, Israel. Yeah. So Fred M was all about industrial Zion. So um, I think very much like all all of us, the people of our times, but committed to this concept of building the kingdom of God on earth uh, and was very interested in communitarian experiments, buying property in Jackson County, Missouri and Atherton and trying to develop communal farming and things like that. Uh, he was our leader from 1915 to 1946. He had a PhD from Clark University, um, very well educated. Um, some remember him as kind of gruff. Um, our, the family tradition is that uh, he, he wouldn't even kill an ant or a, you know, he had a mouse, pet mouse that lived in his cabin with him and would feed it rather than taking it out. <laughs> So it's kind of fun to see the different ways that people remember um, remember us as we pass. Uh, he also couldn't see very well. So, you know, people would complain that he'd walk past him and not say hello. He didn't recognize him. <laughs> uh, his brother, so Fred dies in 1946. His brother, then Israel A. Smith, uh, succeeds him. Uh, the biography on Israel is called Gentle Monarch. And I think that really encapsulates Israel's personality well. Much loved leader, and he really helped us expand our understandings of Zion. Um, these ideas of building the kingdom of God where you're at, not necessarily having the most talented pack up and move to Jackson County, Missouri. So Israel helped us start turning even more outward uh, he's killed in a car accident, and he is succeeded by his half-brother, W. Wallace Smith. W. Wallace is the first um, president of the church that I remember um, hearing about and meeting as a young child. Um, one of the things the presidents of the church used to do in, and may still do once we can travel again is show up when a congregation has a... a uh, dedication having paid off their building or has a hundred year anniversary or those types of things. And I remember W. Wallace came out in the early 1960s to where I lived and we all dressed in our finest and came down to meet the president of the church. So Joseph Smith III's legacy went beyond the three men that then led the church into what we would call the modern um, age. Um, there was more, there were more aspects of his legacy. What are some of the important kind of strains of his legacy that we can still see in the church? I think among the most important are his interest in reconnecting with our, our focus on peace, which was actually there in the very earliest years of the church, 1830, 31, 32, but soon kind of lost in this frontier culture of violence, Joseph III managed to, to redirect us back towards becoming peacemakers. And he 
focuses on that theme again and again and again. And it, it's so integrated into the life of the church that I think a lot of people miss it because <laughs> it's, it's woven in so, so finely. <laughs> so I think maybe the greatest gift Joseph III gave us, or one of them anyway, was returning us to that focus on the pursuit of peace, critically important. I think also his, um, I don't know if it's so much a rejection of Nauvoo theologically as his lack of accepting, you know, he's a child when his dad is killed. But so what Joseph III did is, is go back and start looking at the teachings of the church in the scriptures and in the church newspapers, in effect, the public teachings of the church. And, and that is what he worked to to rebuild. So the the private part of Nauvoo, plural, plural marriage, plurality of gods, progression of godhood, simply didn't make it into the reorganization. Now I say that, but there were some members who had been in Nauvoo and believed some of those things. Joseph III would approach that by saying, well, that's fine. You're welcome to believe that, but I'm not going to give you the pages of the Herald to teach it. And I'm uh, not not going to invite you to preach that from the pulpit, and and he was young and they died, so he won in the end. He outlived <laughs> the folks. So he began ways. our faithful disagreement policy to kind of return us to the New Testament. He did, and that's another I think really critical element is he welcomed dissent and protected dissenters. Uh, now there were obviously limits, but yeah, I think it's critically important what he did. And I think that's kind of fleshed out in our our faithful disagreement principles today. I'm wondering how his experience with other denominations growing up informed him. I seem to recall him either quoting Charles Wesley or making a comment where he referred to Charles Wesley in saying that he found either good or truth in lots of expressions of, of Christian community. I haven't seen that quote, but that sure sounds like something that Joseph III would quote. Uh, and I have to think, as you suggested, that his uh, interaction with, with those of other faiths and his attendance of other churches was critical in that development. Uh, he attends the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago in the 1890s. Um, and comes away really impressed with somebody he describes as an Indian philosopher who points out that, that, that we don't listen to what Jesus teaches as Christians, that not only do we uh, turn to violence, but at times we strike first. <laughs> this guy was calling out Christians for not practicing what their book teaches. <laughs> so even into kind of interfaith, um, ideas at the time in the 1890s. So some of these um, aspects of his life and leadership continue to shape community of Christ. What are some things that you see now as we move forward, particularly as we're called to move towards Jesus, the peaceful one? What from Joseph Smith III is still shaping us? So we touched on it a little bit, but that, that focus on the pursuit of peace is still very much with us the the comfortableness with dissent 
welcoming dissent, defending dissenters, protecting dissenters. Now, with our restoration of schism in the 1980s, that got harder, and and some of our members have have struggled with uh, how to interact with dissenters in more recent years. But but that's why I think these um, principles of faithful disagreement are so very important. Um, and I think Joseph III's pragmatism, this, this biography uh, by Roger Lani is Joseph Smith III, Pragmatic Prophet is the title, which I highly recommend. I think that that his pragmatism is very much alive and well in the church today. So when you um, look back and, and kind of process your study of the life and legacy of Joseph Smith uh, the third, not just as historical figure, but as um, a contributing forefather of your own family. What has sh- what about him has shaped your discipleship that you can kind of look today and say, yeah, that that pretty much came from there. Or what about him do you aspire to have shape your discipleship? So, like Joseph the third, I'm extraordinarily pragmatic, and. And I like to think that 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 was shaped by Joseph Smith III. I kind of think, though, I was just born that way. <laughs> and so I just connect to that element uh, more quickly. Uh, but, but I really appreciate the way he approached conflict in the church. Um, and, and he made sure there was room for folks. Um, you know, when, when something goes wrong, I, I don't panic. I don't start screaming and yelling. I just learn from it and, and do what I can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, I, I like to think that that's how Joseph Smith III would have approached some of these situations as well. Well, I want to thank you, Locke, for being willing to share with us a little bit about Joseph Smith III. And I would encourage um, folks to go to the uh, Historic Sites Foundation webpage and and view your entire lecture. You have photographs and other visuals that were just wonderful to see and to look at and help understand Joseph Smith III more fully. Any last thoughts about his life and legacy you want to share with our listeners? I just want to recommend again, Pragmatic Prophet, Roger Lanius, University of Illinois. Uh, Try and find a used copy. You can still buy new, but it's print on demand and really expensive. And Joseph Smith III's memoirs are a fun read. It's not the kind of thing you'll sit down and read cover to cover, I'm guessing, but lots of really interesting stories and lots of detail that you don't find anywhere else. If you're coming from the the background of the Church of Jesus Christ, um, lots of stories about people that you know, but stories that you've never heard before. So it's kind of fun to get just a slightly different take on some of the things that were happening in Nauvoo and later. And also you contributed to a text with some other authors on the peace strain in community of Christ. Can you, and that's at heraldhouse.org. Can you give us the title of that text as well? In pursuit of peace. So listeners, you can find that at heraldhouse.org, or you can go to the Community of Christ website and click on affiliates and it will take you directly there for resources. Again, I want to point our our listeners to the Historic Sites Foundation website where you can see not only Locke's 
lecture on Joseph Smith III, but the other lectures from the Historic Sites Foundation's summer series. And so um, some of them connect. I think when we uh, talk to Barb Walden about Marietta Walker, we find F.M. Smith, Joseph Smith III's son, appearing in that lecture as well. So there's lots of crossover. And in the meantime, uh, check back. This is Cup of Joe, part of the Project Zion podcast. We've been chatting with Locke Mackay. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Dave Hines